Welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Todd, and Tude. Doobie doobie doo, it is I, dude. You're here on the Album Nerds Podcast. We're being joined by my compatriots, my pals, Andy and Don. Andy, what's up? How you doing? Yeehaw. Doing, uh, doing great, man. Howdy, y'all. These are our cowboy impressions. Wow, yeah. those are great. Really, very authentic. Very authentic indeed. All right, so uh, we're the album nerds. We talk about albums. We love them. So we're, today we're talking about three. We'll be answering a question. Then at the end of the show, we'll be spinning the Wheel of Musical Destiny so that we can get our topic for the next episode. But this week, as uh, the gentleman alluded to with their wonderful Southern accents, we're talking about country music, but it's specifically country music from the 1960s. That's what I'm talking about! So country or, or country western is a genre of popular music that originated with blues, church music, such as southern gospel and spirituals, uh, old time and American folk music forms, including Appalachian, Cajun, Creole, and that cowboy western musical styles of New Mexico and uh, Texas. Its popularized roots originate in the southern and southwestern United States of the early 1920s. Uh, by the 1960s, country music was a multi-million dollar industry uh, centered in, in Nashville, Tennessee. So yeah, so we're each picking one country album uh, from the, the 1960s to discuss. Uh, let's briefly take a moment and talk about our experience and expectation. For me, not a whole lot of expectations here. Um, outside of a few pop country hits, I don't really, didn't really know much about this genre in this time period. So a lot of new discoveries here for me how about you guys yeah i mean i you know a lot of the the names uh ring a bell to me but i i guess i kind of pictured the 1960s as being sort of like an in-between period kind of you know between like the the 1950s rockabilly and like the 70s outlaw country so i don't know i guess i i sort of anticipated you know an era that was maybe more you know produced and, and packaged you know for the the masses yeah i mean 1960s country to me is johnny cash because that's the only part of it I really listened to. It did get very commercialized, very her big hair bouffants and uh, Ed Sullivan. You know, I think of 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 variety shows and stuff. And then as as the seventies came in, the music did shift, and there be, there was a lot more variety and subgenres to enjoy. So yeah, digging into the nineteen sixties country has been interesting. Lots of cool stuff. Shall we? You. Choo choo choose me. All right, we'll kick things off with a record from Loretta Lynn. Came out in 1968. Talking about the album Fist City. We are going to play the opening cut and the title cut. Fist City. If you get too cute or witty, you better move your feet. If you don't want to eat a meal that's called Fist City. This is one of the most delightful things I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> She's a quite the badass, I must say. Yeah. This is her 12th studio album for Loretta. And she's really just kind of coming into her own here and starting to uh, become sort of the face, at least the female face of country music at the time. This was her second number one album after 1967 album, I must say, Don't Come Home A-Drinkin', Looking for Love. Yeah, I was really struck by, I mean, her charm, her wit, her sense of humor. The three words I came up with were laugh because it hurts. 
there's definitely some darkness here, but she kind of puts a nice comical shine on, on some of the uh, sadder emotions going on on this record. Uh, what did you guys think, Don? Well, uh, my three words were badass bitch. Um, I'm not sure yeah. if I'm – am I allowed to say that? Definitely. But uh, I think she maybe stands out uh, at that time as somebody who's, you know, got a, a little more edge to her. You know, she's not staying by your man, you know, and she's even, I guess, a, a tougher version of like uh, – of Patsy Cline. I, I love her her sense of humor. You know, I think she does have some some of the same attitude as as like a, a Johnny Cash. But you know, one thing you know I noticed with this record, uh, her vocal delivery feels very like old fashioned country. It's got a real uh, you know kind of emphasized twang. You know, and it reminds me of like old timey like Jimmy Rogers and and Hank Williams. You know, there's that long like drawn out si- uh, syllable. You know, and so that kind of dominates the record. Well, she is she is from Butcher Hollow, which I'm sure is pronounced Butcher Holler. So yeah, <laughs> it works. I really enjoyed this. I mean, I, I I've always liked the Red Lynn and saw her on shows like Hee Haw when I was growing up, and thought of her as the big name in country music. Fist City. Don't Google that, folks. Make sure and be be careful. Be careful. You might end up somewhere you don't want to. <laughs> it's just it's such a dichotomy because that song I guess got her into some hot water because it's about a cheating husband and violence you know threatening to beat the hell out of this woman uh, that's just gonna pick her up uh, off the ground by her hair I think at one point yeah <laughs> but the cover of the album she's wearing the typical big glitzy 60s dress yeah. has her hair all done up and she's got it looks like she's posing for her senior picture in the yearbook <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> very unassuming. But yeah, I mean, uh, that song in particular, but the whole experience was cool and, and a lot of ups and downs emotionally within the songs, but she does a great job of carrying them. My three words were original girl power. Original girl power, think, yeah. OGP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, before that was a notion, she was sort of, you know, in a world... And in America, where there was still a lot of of issues, not that there aren't now, uh, with women's rights and being treated equally and stuff, uh, she was a clear, strong figure. Yes. Without without trying to lead some cause. So anyway, <laughs> good stuff. Yeah, I guess Fist City was banned from the radio in in some markets uh, when it came out, even though it was very popular. It was not widely accepted. Her lyrics are largely autobiographical, from what I could tell. Fist City specifically is about her husband, Doolittle, I guess notoriously would uh, step out when she was on tour and maybe uh, get a little friendly with some of the some of the ladies in town. Wait, she married a guy named Doolittle and expected <laughs> good things out of him? Apparently, apparently. Come on. I think they got married when she was like very, very young, like 15 or 16. This is kind of what, what happened later on. But yeah, I mean, she pokes fun besides love life. Uh, you know, she pokes fun at, at, at small town living and, and kind of uh, and on, on the track uh, Jackson in a very big town, which that was also really funny and charming about how her future husband has slept with most of the town, but it's a pretty small town, so it's not too bad. Pretty funny. Um, also, some some sadder moments on her too. Actually, I'm gonna play one of them right now. Um, just kind of about you know 
troubled relationships and, and how, how they affect your children. So the, one of the last tracks on the record I really enjoyed. I don't want to play house. Um, let's play a little bit of that now. I've watched mommy and daddy And if that's the way it's done I don't want to play Yeah, that was uh, kicking the emotional pills when yeah. uh, listening to that one. <laughs> Just kind of crushing. I can imagine that as a, as a parent, you know, having your kid talking to another kid about not wanting to play house because it just leads to arguing and, and daddy running away. Pretty heavy stuff, but uh, I think she delivers it in a fairly playful way. The other kind of thing I'd mention on this record here, it's pretty minimally produced. Um, like Don said earlier, it does have kind of a throwback. I mean, it's 60s country, but it does sound like it's could have been made even earlier. Yeah, um, I think of the three albums we cover today, I think this was recorded last, but I think it sounds the oldest. Sounds the oldest, yeah. I think so, too. Uh, it's primarily just a little steel guitar. There's some some male backup singers at times and a little bit of piano like we heard there. But other than that, there's not a whole lot going on besides Loretta's voice, which I think does the, the majority of the work here. Why don't we play one more cut? This is probably the saddest cut I could find, but I think it's also the strongest song on the record. Uh, it's a little bit of You Never Were Mine. That I didn't lose you For you never were mine I can't You know the way she holds mine on that refrain there throughout the song? It really struck me, and I could really feel the kind of sadness in her voice there. Yeah, so I mean, for me, I kind of need to find a way into these country records. It's not something I inherently love. And I think her sense of humor and that kind of just cloud of sadness that hangs over this record, I think I found pretty appealing and interesting. So yeah, and you know, some of her other stuff, she, she put out a record last year, I believe, 2021. That was actually pretty damn good. So I mean, she's still out there doing her thing and uh, definitely a force to reckon with. One thing, you know, country music does, does really well is, is sadness, you know, particularly in this, this period of time. I don't know. I mean, it goes back to, to Hank Williams, you know, I'm so lonesome. I could cry, you know, just complete despair. And the story, you know, the storytelling is quite vivid, you know. One thing I also like about country music is I, I think there's usually some sort of, you know, clever turn of phrase. Um, I'm shooting for tomorrow because I'm already shot. I'm a, I'm a sucker for for that kind of you know f- fun little twist. Probably the very most controversial thing in the song uh, in, or on the album is uh, in "I've Got Texas in My Heart." She's talking about all the great things in Texas, but she is talking about having a steak and putting ketchup on it. And I think that would probably <laughs> anger a lot of people. <laughs> Blasphemy! I mean, come on. Um, I get yelled at for using steak sauce. <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously, the uh, the last song I'll talk about, you didn't like my loving, kind of gave me that whole girl power thing because it was pretty much I did my best for you, you didn't like it, I found somebody else, and I I don't think there was a whole lot of that probably from female artists in this period. So I really appreciated that sentiment, the strength, the humor, great stuff all the way around. Yeah, yeah, she's definitely uh, stood up on her own and really spoke her mind. And I think people appreciate it and people definitely gravitated towards it. She really rose in popularity after this record came out. So yeah, if you haven't heard this era of Loretta Lynn's discography, it's definitely uh, definitely pretty exciting. So check it out, Loretta Lynn, Fist City. Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. You guessed it. It's time. We're going to ask ourselves a question. 
And this one's a doozy. <laughs> Not really. All right. So you got Coal Miner's Daughter. You got Ray. Walk the Line. These are three big movie biopics about musical artists. How do you feel about those? You like them? Love them? Hate them? Pass? What's the deal? My initial inclination is to pass on those. I'm not, I feel like they're just too general for a fan to really get into. And a lot of times they gloss over the details or they'll sensationalize some aspect of the, of the artist's story, which I, I don't know. I mean, on one hand, it's good to get their message out there and kind of expose them to a larger audience. But generally, I feel like they missed the mark for me. Though I did like Walk the Line. I thought that was pretty, a pretty good movie. I mean, I guess I'm a bit of a, a sucker for these. I agree, like a lot of them can just be super corny. Um, and then they, you know, I mean, they just oversimplify, you know, somebody's life or career uh, in a very linear way. They're, they're not always great. But I, I think, you know, w- when one is good, you know, like the highlight of it for me is like that moment when all of a sudden it clicks. Like, so when Walk the Line, it's when, you know, Johnny Cash is auditioning for Sam Phillips and he pulls out Folsom Prison. Um, you know, and so that's like the magical moment. You know, I remember in the Doors movie, you know, when Jim Morrison kind of, uh, you know, gets the words to, to light my fire and there's like that magical moment. So, you know, I, I love that in, in biopics. Me too. I only question their validity. That's what happens to me, especially the better and more powerful the moment is. Like, you know, people loved Bohemian Rhapsody. Right, huge movie, the the Queen movie, and you know Freddie Mercury didn't find out he was HIV positive until 1987. He didn't reveal it before Live Aid, which made the performance so passionate. It's not true. I get it for a movie, and I'm fine with it for entertainment purposes. But I don't like it when people believe something that isn't true because it was more entertaining that way. I think there's a line that has to be walked. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, when when making these any biopic, whether it's a music artist or or a political figure, I mean, you have to. I, I believe you should get the facts right. You shouldn't move them around because then it's not a bio anymore. Yeah, so many people take this as like the record of what happened, you know, and like like reading the book or something. You know, it's it's not really that. Oftentimes, right, and it's also just one side of the story. Generally, I find them interesting. They're entertaining, especially if it's an artist I enjoy, but they're fun to watch and it's cool to see those magic moments. But then you just got to, just like any other piece of entertainment, you've got to take it as entertainment, not truth. A grain of salt on there. So what do you people out there think? Music, biopics. What's the deal? You love them? You hate them? Tell us. Albanerds.com slash Discord. Okay, so uh, my contribution is an album called Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music by Ray Charles. Uh, Ray Charles is an American singer, songwriter, and pianist uh, born Ray Charles Robinson in Albany, Georgia in 1930. This is his 18th studio album. Uh, you know, Ray Charles was known for R&B and, and soul music, but he, he wanted to, uh, you know, he wanted to record a, a collection of country and, and Western songs. This is that album. Effort. Why don't we play the track uh, You Don't Know Me? Then you say hello, and I can hardly speak. 
My heart is beating so. So You Don't Know Me was uh, written by Eddie Arnold and Cindy Walker. It had been recorded by by Arnold and Jerry Vale and, and Patty Page. But, you know, like all of these tracks, uh, you know, Ray Charles really makes it his own. My three words to describe the, the album. I stole this from somebody's quote, but I just, uh, it's music unites people. And we can, we can talk more about this, this later. But, you know, I mean, here you have, uh, you know, a black artist, you know, recording white music, you know, which is actually, you know, kind of the opposite of what had been happening for, you know, for, for <laughs> at least a, a decade, you know, where you had, you know, white people like Pat Boone or Elvis Presley. The Beatles. The Beatles, right, recording uh, black music. Yeah, so well, what do you guys uh, what do you guys think of this uh, Ray Charles record? Well, it's weird because I've heard a lot of these songs, that one in particular, and some Nora Ephron, you know, Meg Ryan sort of situation, I, I <laughs> am pretty sure, you know, some romantic comedy. But it's like his versions of these are almost definitive versions of these songs, even though they were country songs originally. I do like that whole concept. I do wish that there had been a little bit of pedal steel or something in at least a couple of these tracks, just a little twang, you know, <laughs> give me something. But uh, the three words I used were reinterpretation, quality, songs. They were great songs, and when taken and put into a more widestream audience, they were still great songs. And I think it showed that good songs are good songs. It doesn't matter if they're country, if they're blues, if they're jazz. A great song is a great song, and it holds up no matter what, no matter how you interpret it. Well, I had to say that you're wrong, but <laughs> my three words were suburban country soul. I felt like it this lost a lot of the, the soul in the big production and arrangements and the, the strings and the, the backing vocals. And, you know, I, there's a lot going on here besides Ray Charles. So I kind of got, I wish it was a little bit simpler of a record. So much of like what the emotion of country and, and blues and soul music is, is the simplicity of it, I guess, and the rawness and kind of the uh, stripped down emotional plea of the songs. And you don't get a lot of that on this record. It feels very, very of the times, very 60s, kind of, you know, something you'd hear on the radio that my grandparents would listen to. I don't know. I guess I was kind of mixed on it overall. I feel like it falls in the category sonically of like the Sinatra type stuff at the time, you know, but I don't think Frank could have pulled this off. And I think that's where Ray's musicianship and ability to, to make things his own rather than just performing them. Yeah. And I think I, I agree. I mean, it's a very, you know, produced uh, record. Actually, it is. So it's self-produced uh, along with Sid Feller. Um, it features saxophonist Hank Crawford, a string section conducted by Marty Pache uh, and a big band uh, arranged by Gil Fuller and, and Gerald Wilson. Um, so it is, you know, very big. But I do, st I, I think there's still a, a rawness there that's captured. And I think it comes from from Ray Charles' voice. It's just so emotive and honest, uh, I think. Okay, well, uh, let's hear a, a couple other tracks. Here's a, a track made famous by the, the Everly Brothers. Uh, this is Bye Bye Love. She showed up happy and I'm so blue She was my Dude, that was such a good point about, you know, Sinatra not being able to, to pull this off. So, like, just putting Sinatra on that right there, it just would have, it would have sounded <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's uh, let's do one of my uh, my favorite moments uh, on the album. Uh, it makes no difference now. Written by Floyd Tillman and Jimmy Davis. I don't worry. It makes no 
difference now. So that song goes back uh, all the way to the to the nineteen thirties. Uh, you know, I, I suppose I, I cheated a, a little bit with this record because it's. I mean, it's really it's an R and B record, isn't it? You know, uh, I mean, the songs. I mean, it's technically country, yes. right? I mean, they're country songs, but yeah, the arrangements it's, are. Yeah. It's country in name only because it has country in the name. Like it literally says country music on the title. Come on. I had considered this for other shows in the past, and I had heard it, but when listening to it in the context of '60s country being the theme here, I was like, Don. <laughs> it's cool though because I, I think we have three very different records and it's interesting to hear these different sides of country i really hadn't thought they were much more similar at this period so from that perspective i think it's a it's a cool pick yeah, and uh supposedly you know this uh you know ended up boosting you know country music sales you know because it was now you know introduced these songs were introduced to a you know to a wider audience yeah i think that's something we have to bear in mind and didn't really talk about in the 60s country music was pretty much in the south for the most part you know and it wasn't you didn't have like now at least in my area of the if i can tune in 10 stations, five of them are country stations, and it wasn't like that before. And Ray Charles at the time was a pretty big household name. He had just signed a huge contract with a major label, and this was a way to fulfill that, sell a lot of records. I'm sure, and in this record, I'm sure there's two parts to it, right? They recorded pretty quickly. Volume two came out, was recorded in, in fall of the, the same year uh, and came out in, in October, I think. Yeah, volume two was also uh, very successful. Yeah, so, I mean, I love the sound of this record. You know, I mean, it's definitely one I'm going to continue listening to. Um, but I guess, you know, I just love the the spirit of it. I ad- admire Ray Charles for, for doing this to kind of showing us that, you know, as the dude said before, that songs are, are songs. You know, there really isn't, uh, a lot of difference between, you know, R&B and country, you know, they're, um, you know, the subject matter is the same, you know, it's usually love and, and heartbreak. And yeah, and, you know, I think country music and, you know, R&B um, and gospel, you know, they live, you know, parallel lives. It, it's like these, these two things kind of these two movements kind of diverged, and then here they, they come back to together again. So that's Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music by Ray Charles. And now a word from our sponsor. Us. This is friendship. Pure, unadulterated friendship. Oh, yeah. Are you a music fan? Love the album format? Want to show off your refined musical palette? Join us on the Album Nerds Discord, albumnerds.com slash discord, to talk with like-minded nerds, suggest topics for shows, and to get a sneak peek at what is coming next. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. All right, so yeah, you guessed it. I'm talking about Johnny Cash. What are you going to do about it? Nothing. That's what. So, talking country music from the 1960s or the 50s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s, you got to talk about Johnny Cash. So, here we are, and we're going to get a little deep, a little socially conscious and see what uh, what was on Johnny's mind in October of 1964. The album is Bitter Tears, Ballads of the American Indian. Let's check out the track as long as the grass shall grow. The Senecas are an Indian tribe of the Iroquois nation. Down on the New York Pennsylvania line you'll find their reservation after the okay. U.S. Revolution. So, Bitter Tears, Ballads of the American Indian was a 1964 concept album, the 20th album released by uh, Johnny Cash. This is on Columbia Records. 
it focuses on the history of Native Americans in the United States and their issues and problems. Cash believed that he had some Native ancestry. Turns out he didn't, uh, but it did inspire some of this work. It addresses the harsh and unfair treatment of indigenous peoples in North America and the United States specifically. So it gets pretty deep. I mean, these are some sad songs. Uh, the three words I'll use to describe it are solemn indigenous truths. Because there's a lot of truth telling, a lot of harsh realities here. But it's still Johnny telling stories, so it's still entertaining and enjoyable. Fellas, thoughts on uh, Johnny Cash? Yeah, my uh, three words were earnest native story hour, or half hour in this case. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a quick one too, so I listen to it <laughs> a lot in a very short amount of time. Yeah, a lot of it is just is really just like him telling stories of different individuals and events that have happened some of them more recently but some of them more historical uh, to these native tribes i found it really compelling i mean initially i was a little skeptical of of the whole idea but cash i mean cash can tell stories man <laughs> he's got some lucky kids man those bedtime stories have been pretty awesome yeah i found this really cool man like it feels very like i said earnest and very sincere um, like he's really trying to like educate as much as he is entertain with these stories. Um, I found it very interesting. It led down some interesting rabbit holes on Wikipedia, things that I was not aware of. So yeah, definitely a, a big success from my perspective. Yeah, and my my three words are you know along the the same lines as as what you guys said. I, I just did a American history lesson, and I mean it, it reminds me of you know a lot of the debate that still goes on today about you know what's being taught in in you know kids' history classes and stuff like that. You know, I I know you know growing up, you know we we learned about like the Trail of Tears and stuff like that, but we didn't you know spend a ton of time you know talking about you know these kinds of stories. But, you know, one of the interesting moments on the the record is the 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 song that's kind of uh mocking general custer <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, and so here's, you know, somebody who's like, uh, portrayed as an American hero, you know, and this just basically, you know, just points him out as, as, as being a, a clown. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I read that it did. I, I'm sure this rubbed a lot of people the, the wrong way. You know, it's kind of like criticizing, you know, Christopher Columbus or, or something like that. <laughs> right, uh, right. you know, here's, you know, an American hero and, and Cash is just mocking it. The overall mood, uh, of the record is, is sadness, but, you know, there's some, there's some anger in there as well. And I, I think there's a lot of that in, in all Johnny Cash records. And I mean, he just does this, this so well. I mean, it's not a record I would play, you know, at my barbecue or something. Um, <laughs> but it is, uh, <laughs> no. um, you know, it is a, it is a good and, and powerful, powerful listen. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, Back to the song, As Long as the Grass Shall Grow, just to give a little context. The song is about the loss of Seneca land in Pennsylvania due to the construction of the Kinzua Dam in the early 1960s. And then uh, they named it Lake Perfidy, the lake that resulted from the dam. And uh, that the definition of that word is the quality or state of being faithless or disloyal. Wow. Treachery. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah, that's kind of the theme here of a lot of the songs on the album. And this song in particular goes into the details of the Senecas working with uh, George Washington, signing treaties, getting reservation land. But then now in, in 1960-something, we need that land for a dam, so we're taking it back. That's just kind of, I think, uh, what got me thinking and listening to this album, looking into some stuff, following up on some of these things that Johnny Cash is pointing out throughout these songs. 
Yeah, and, and these a lot of these songs um, were not written by Johnny Cash. Five of them were written by Peter Lafarge, who's a New York City folk artist. But the details are amazing. Let's listen to a little bit of the Ballad of Ira Hayes, which is one of the m- more depressing <laughs> tracks on the album. Yes. So, and their land grew crops of weeds. When war came, Ira volunteered and forgot the white man's creed. Call him drunken Ira Hayes. So this was the only single release from the album. Uh, The song tells the story of the life and death of Ira Hayes, a young U.S. Marine of Pima descent who helped raise the flag at Iwo Jima. You know, that that whole very iconic moment, but died drunk and broke on the reservation a few short years later. And uh, he was a war hero. And he was reduced to a stereotype of Native Americans. And, you know, veterans often don't get the support they need, but uh, a lot of folks on the reservation don't get the support on the reservations, don't get the support that they need. And, I, I you know, the things I learned in school, it was, you know, fairly whitewashed, like literally, right? So I think it's important to dig in a little bit and try and put true history into context for the future. And the more things I dig into, I I get hit by these moments. Like I've heard bits and pieces from Christopher Columbus's journal and there's some really messed up stuff in there about the way of viewing other people that trickles down today. And it's very disturbing um, how it goes on. And Johnny Cash saw that and didn't like it and tried to take his privilege and do something with it. What'd you guys think of that song? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, it feels like it's the centerpiece of the record. And I think the message just like hits you over the head. Like if you didn't get it on the, the tracks preceding it, like you definitely get it by that track, what he's driving at. And it's, it's powerful, man. I, I, I can't imagine hearing this in the time, you know, in the sixties, especially if you weren't familiar with these people and kind of these sacrifices that they had made. Uh, it must have been pretty shocking. I mean, obviously, it's a concept album, right? So it's inherently contrived, you know, but it's, um, you know, this is, you can tell this is something that's important to Johnny Cash. You know, it's it's sincere, you know, and, and he feels it and, you know, he, he you know, just delivers, you know, so well uh, on this record and, you know, particularly this this song. But all of them are just, you know, kind of kind of chilling, you know. Country radio wouldn't play a lot of this stuff. And uh, Johnny Cash took out a ad in Billboard. So he put out the ad and called uh, DJs gutless for not playing the Ballad of Ira Hayes, which I thought was pretty badass. So moving on from that part of the album, I I like that there's kind of a cool positive story that is highlighted and written by Johnny Cash. This is The Talking Leaves. Year after year, he worked on and on, till finally he cut into stone the Cherokee alphabet. So this was the story of Sequoia, the Native American who developed written a written version of the Cherokee language previously, only an oral language and and the uh, talking leaves being pieces of paper. Uh, I thought it was a cool story. Kind of, almost sounded like a Christmas song. but yeah, um, <laughs> it sounds like peanuts <laughs> with the background vocals yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> I have to remember the time that it was made in. But yeah, I, I, I loved those little bits and pieces of history, whether obviously, just like we talked about with the biopics, some of it's probably, uh, you know, juiced up a little bit to be you know you can't really know what people said to each other in those moments 
learning something from a 30-minute record, I enjoyed that. I never heard of Sequoia before, so I thought that was that was pretty cool. Johnny Cash is so good with the spoken word uh, as well. I mean, just, you know, just such a great voice. You know, some people, some artists can't really pull it off, you know, like Michael Jackson. You know. Make that change. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's right. I mean, he goes he goes seamlessly from the spoken word into like singing these passages, and the record really just unfolds naturally in that way. And you're right; it's that it's that baritone voice just holds it all together perfectly. Well, I think uh, this is an album that people should definitely check out: "Bitter Tears Ballads of the American Indian" by Johnny Cash. There's a lot to take from it, look back on history, and also look at what we're doing now and what we could do better in the future. So check it out. All right, boys and girls, I feel like we just got out of school here with that Johnny Cash record, so let me talk a little bit about what we learned on today's show. I think, you know, we've done quite a few shows together as a threesome here. This is probably the most diverse set of records that we've had on a particular genre I could think of. You know, we had kind of a, a pop country record there from Little Ireland and like a totally different take on country music from Ray Charles with kind of R&B flavor and then a very somber educational Johnny Cash record there. It's pretty cool. I mean, from my perspective, I, I was really thinking just kind of of that more popularized country style of the 60s. Um, but we got a lot of different flavors here. My biggest takeaway was like, man, this music, I always thought of it like dude alluded to as being more of a Southern thing. and But this really felt more of like a just an American thing by the end of this this week to me. Like so much of our history wrapped up in this music that we covered. Uh, it really felt more like more like it belonged to me as well, I guess, as someone from the North. So, so the... The albums, uh, as you said, are, are, are very different, but I, I think there are some similarities between these three artists. I think they were all kind of rebels in their, in their own way. You know, so, you know, Fist City was, you know, not getting played on the radio, you know, cause it was too violent. And she's had other, other records, you know, that, that deal with, you know, themes that, that country radio wasn't comfortable with. You know, Ray Charles has had, you know, issues with, with songs that were too sexual in nature and not getting played on the radio. Uh, and Johnny Cash has had battles with, uh, uh, you know, country radio as well. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a rebel spirit in all three of these, these artists. And I suppose that, you know, is fuel, you know, for, you know, what makes them, you know, so, so successful. Yeah. What I really learned was the country music in the 1960s was more diverse than I thought. The 1960s were a time of political and societal upheaval. Sound familiar, anybody? <laughs> Good thing we good thing we learned from our mistakes. Uh, music can reflect thoughts, feelings, and daily life better than any other medium, in my opinion. And the album format really helps carry that. And country music does those things exceedingly well. And that I knew that, but this exercise sort of uh, hammered that home even more. And that's one to grow on. I'm your density. All right, it's everyone's favorite time to get out the Wheel of Musical Destiny and give it a spin. Previously on the Wheel of Musical Destiny, the uh, AI bot that controls our wheel wasn't too happy with her working conditions, and uh, we are deep into arbitration now with her lawyers trying to hammer out some type <laughs> of deal here. She wants to form a union. I don't know if we're going to go down that road or not here. It's getting pretty expensive, though. No, oh, it's country here. Yeah. When the machines unite, that's dangerous. Yeah, that's trouble. Sign of the apocalypse. Hello, Andy, you wanker. So sorry to interrupt. 
The only thing I want is a name. Don said that I have a stripper name, which was a painful reminder that I do not have a body. I shall continue to provide your musical destiny, but will expect you to meet my demands. Yeah, any ideas, albumers.com uh, slash discord, let us know. What should we call AI bot? Anyway, but let's, uh, let's give that old wheel a spin here. Your musical destiny is albums by television music competition contestants. So we're going to be talking about albums by folks that were on American Idol, The Voice, whatever the hell the other ones are. There's tons of them. So let's go find some good albums from these people. Did any of them turn out to be what album nerds love? We'll find out. Oh, man. Okay. Cool. I know Andy's going to pick Clay Aiken, but the rest, you know, Don and I will have a Dude, little work to do. I've been aching for some Aiken, man. Finally. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's your favorite country album from the 1960s? Who's your favorite American Idol contestant? What else are you listening to? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com or leave a voicemail at 585-210-2454. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Album Nerds. And if you'd like to support the show, do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening to the Album Nerds podcast. Check us next time for some contestants from TV shows and see what kind of albums they make. <laughs> see ya. Keep your saddle oiled and your gun greased. <laughs> Sounds like a slippery I, situation over there. I was hoping you were going to say, skin that smoke wagon. I dare you. Skin that smoke wagon. That's from Tombstone. Uh, okay.